been um, <clears throat> speaking with people just the last few days, I'd say. One of the themes I've sort of noticed, not with everyone, of course, but kind of running through a lot of the conversations, is a, a sort of a, an underground or not so underground sense of discouragement or a kind of, a sort of an impatience, you know, manifesting in, in various ways, partly, um, well, people say, really having deep insight, for instance, into some of our very painful patterns of personality or really experiencing on a deep level a dukkha of craving or the pain and the misperception that's brought about by self-judgment, just to pick two common ones. And despite this deep understanding, seeing, but it's still going on. And it seems actually to be going on more than it was before, or more tenaciously, or I'm seeing more subtle levels of it, which indeed can be discouraging. Or another way that it's talked about is, uh, as mindful as I've been all this time, it seems that as soon as the energy drops or somehow the mindfulness goes away, in like a rush come our friends, the calaces or the torments. You know, it's like, if that happens here, where the conditions are so supportive and where I have, you know, such a relatively small amount of distraction, I might as well just give up. Because when I get out of here, it's just going to be so much more. These are like just common kinds of themes that have been coming up. I don't know if you can relate. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, those are accurate, perhaps accurate perceptions. I would like to posit that the conclusion drawn that it's hopeless is not an accurate conclusion. But... um. I want to talk tonight really two aspects. The main thing I want to do is to just for a while shift our focus from our obsessive attention to the calaces to perhaps reminding us to also notice the pure aspects of mind, which are also getting stronger. (laughs) We forget to look sometimes. But the first aspect... um, I want to speak to is the impatience and the seeming strength of these torments of mind, how quickly they come flying up. And I think that's true. That um, when we first start practice, not even when we first start practice, I mean on and on and on, it's, it's hard to appreciate, at least it is for me, it's like always a new revelation, to appreciate the depth and the subtlety of ignorance. I know this morning someone told me that someone was asking a question about this and Steve was saying, you know, we've spent at least however old you are now that amount of your life more or less uh, most of the time cultivating greed, hatred and delusion and that's only if we speak of one lifetime but somehow we think that we just have to see it a few times in three months and it'll go away. I mean, we do, really deeply. It's like a betrayal somehow that this stuff keeps coming up. I mean, it's still for me, it's been 20 some odd years and I'll think, oh no, again this. I saw it to its depths years ago. (laughs) The Buddha spoke of, um, he actually spoke of this as a causal condition for ignorance to arise in a moment. It's something he calls asavas, or the translation I like for it is bias of mind or tendency of mind. The not What we're talking about with these is the subtlety. It's not the full-blown presence of the kilesa or the hindrance itself, for example, desire. But the asava is this 
underlying tendency for becoming or sense desire or wrong view. It's asava is the underlying tendency for this to arise in a moment when the conditions are supportive for it to arise, which usually means when we're not really present, when there's not mindfulness, when we're acting or responding to stimulus out of habit, that's often the supportive condition for these asavas to burst into full flower, so to speak, as craving or as becoming. The Buddha gives the example of it's like a seed. That the seed, say it's the, the seed of a rose bush, has the potential to become a rose bush, but only if all the necessary supportive conditions are present for that seed to become a rose bush. So that's the sort of same way with this concept of these biases of mind or asava. It's, it's not like no matter what happens, if something pleasant arises, we're going to be gripped in craving. It doesn't have to happen, but when the supportive conditions are there, wow, that's really nice. That, just imagine how it would be if I really, you know, had unmindfulness, liking, not noticing, grasping. The supportive conditions and craving arises. It, yet yeah, subtle, it's pervasive. It can be discouraging. I, I remember once, a couple years ago, I was sitting here and in a pretty mindful space, not really spacing out much, and just really watching. So as an experiment, I was seeing, I think it just leaves of some tree or something, and I was noting seeing, I was noting pleasant, very peaceful, calm, nothing else arising. And I deliberately, it was almost as if I pulled the energy back from the knowing, from the noting, and quit being mindful, like on purpose. It was really fascinating. Just like that, came up like a whole, like the armies of Mara, you know, this whole slew of desire and fantasy, nothing to do with the leaves. I mean, just, it was just leaves on a tree. I don't even remember what the story was. But what was amazing to me was how fast and how strong these tendencies came shooting up into actualization in my mind at that moment. So if I just thought, well, that's what's going to happen no matter what, you know, it, it would be quite discouraging. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, I know that's not the case. It was more an experiment to see what happens when conditions are right. And that this tendency is, I think, much more pervasive and more subtle than we like to believe or like to give it credit for. It's also not personal. So we also like to blame ourselves for it every time craving or aversion or wrong view comes up. But what it does point to, to me, rather than discouragement, is the fact that ignorance is not unending. Ignorance, it's a mental factor that arises due to causes. And when those causes are not present in a moment, ignorance will also cease to be present. It comes and goes, you know. It's not like the Big Bang. One day ignorance started and now it's here forevermore. The Buddha said that. He said, ignorance, in fact, is known as something that is conditionally arisen. What we're doing here, besides learning to recognize the presence of ignorance and its manifestations as wrong view, craving, aversion, we're also learning the conditions, both for the arising of ignorance, for getting caught in blindness. We're also learning the conditions for recognizing the truth. Learning that, and we're learning it not intellectually, but experientially, hopefully. <laughs> we're learning that, that mindfulness, that equanimity, that wisdom, 
are the causal conditions that allow us to open to what is really true, that allow us to recognize our true nature, the true luminous nature of mind, to know that truth that is not colored by these biases, these tendencies of mind. And so I I think it's really important for us to keep recognizing that aspect and not let ourselves drown in our reaction to how strong and pervasive these tendencies of mind towards ignorance are. So what we're doing is learning the conditions that let us open to truth. In the process, again, another part of the discouragement, as I mentioned, is that because we're seeing more clearly, that's how we're able to be aware of how pervasive, how subtle these biases of mind are. So because of the strengthening purity of mind, I was able to you know, deliberately do that experiment of pulling back the mindfulness and seeing how these tendencies rushed in. So it's because of this, the deepening purity, the deepening mindfulness, that we are experiencing the painful nature of these torments, of these afflictions. And we're experiencing the pain much more consciously, much more fully, with a much more open heart and an open mind. So the result is, you know, it hurts more. And we notice it more frequently. And we get so enmeshed in this process that we forget to notice why it's hurting more. We only notice that things that we never would have noticed two months ago are now agony. And we think, is this what I'm giving three months of my life for? To find new and various and subtle ways to suffer? (laughs) If we let ourselves rest in that concept, it is overwhelming. It's also not accurate. You know, it's another filter. It's another filter on our perception that's distorting what we see. It's distorting how we understand our perceptions. So I'd just like to, just a suggestion, is as we open to the truth of dukkha, as we recognize and learn to open to the torments, And we are, really. There's so much more equanimity, so much more wisdom, so much more ability to be with the difficult, even though you might not really remember what it was like two months ago. But sometimes we forget, you know, we get so involved in noticing these difficult aspects that we forget, just really, when you're being fully present with one of the torments, one of the difficulties, and it goes away. Stay really present. Also notice that moment of anger, for example, vanishing, that moment of craving dissipating. You know, go, oh, great, now it's gone back to the breath. Wait a minute, just a second, and really notice the quality of consciousness free from kalesa. Notice the quality of the consciousness in that instant of purity. It might not be spectacular, you know, and then we're a hurry, get back to the breath and let's get the concentration going now that the anger's gone. <laughs> Just give it a break for a minute. Notice what's happening in that moment of peace, you know. Begin to recognize the pure nature of consciousness We don't have to be in such a hurry to get something else happening. So along those lines, the rest of what I want to talk about tonight is just some reflections, just some ways of talking about some of the manifestations of the pure nature of consciousness, of the purity of mind. 
And there's many, many ways to speak about it. So I'm just going to speak in terms of the paramis, and specifically a couple of the paramis. None of this is new. It's all reminders. I just want to, you know, sort of balance our perception a bit. Classically, in speaking of, in the Theravada tradition, in speaking of the luminous nature of mind, it doesn't really have any qualities. So in trying to talk about something with no qualities, it gets difficult. But I almost, I experience it as if whatever qualities we speak of are as if reflections, manifestations of this sort of luminous consciousness, not actually it itself. But classically, it's spoken of as non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That's the very kind of, I don't want to say dour, but unexcited Theravadan way of speaking about things. (laughs) But these are much more than sort of neutral, unnoticeable qualities. Non-greed, spoken of before, is the quality of non-attachment, renunciation. It also has the more active aspect of generosity, thoughts and actions of sharing, of service. Non-hatred, acceptance, compassion, metta, patience. Non-delusion, it's that brightness of mind, that clarity of perception that you all know quite well, that allows for the arising of equanimity, of insight, of understanding. Because in that illuminated clarity, we just see what is without all the extras. And as I, what I'm going to really speak about specifically tonight are, and I'll go into it more in a minute, two of the paramis, that of generosity and of patience, which are spoken of as being the perfection of non-greed and non-hatred. But first I just want to um, share an experience, because sometimes I find in myself or in talking with others, speaking about either the perfection of the qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, or non-delusion, even the possibility, the potential of recognizing the purity of our true nature, or the word that to some people is almost anathema, enlightenment, you know, because it sets up so much difficulty and comparing in some people's minds. And sometimes I found it difficult for myself or for other people to not just think about, but really open to the possibility of experiencing quite deeply or recognizing very honestly any of these qualities of awakening. For example, metta, compassion, generosity, patience. There's often can be this sense of, and again, coming from the space I started talking about, we're seeing how much craving there is. We're seeing how easily anger and delusion arises. The tendency is to say, yeah, great, in some other lifetime, maybe when I can go and renounce the world. Or maybe I can experience the moments of purity here, but forget it once I'm back in New York City or Boston. It's out of the question. And sometimes even thinking about these so-called awakening qualities uh, leads one further into comparison and discouragement. An experience that's been kind of a metaphor for me to just show that this is not true at all is a, a, the first retreat I ever did some 20-something years ago was in Bodhgaya in India, which is the little village where the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and came to his deepest realization. And so now it's still a small village, but it's a, obviously a big tourist attraction, and there's a temple there and everything. And I hadn't been back for a long time since that first retreat, and I went back maybe four years ago with some friends. 
I'm not especially a devotional type. So going to um, uh, like a stupa, a landmark like that, I didn't, I wasn't really expecting anything. I just kind of went because I thought, oh, it would be nice going back to Bodh Gaya, a nice idea. So I wasn't prepared for how powerful uh, an experience that was for me. And it was really along these lines of helping me wake up to the fact that what is true is accessible to us here and now as we are now. Because somehow sitting under that, um, they have like a, a successor to the original Bodhi tree, a descendant. And there's a big, big temple behind it, and it's, there's a fence around it. So you can't actually sit underneath it, except some of the people we were with, we got permission, and they unlocked the gate, and we actually did one day get to sit underneath the tree. Which, thinking about it, you think it would be very humbling, you know, what right do I have, defiled as I am, to sit underneath <laughs> this tree? But the effect of being there actually had the opposite effect of, wow, this is just, you know, a dirty little village. This is a real place. And it made me get it that the Buddha was a real person who was struggling with the same things we are, sitting under this tree, came to this understanding in this human realm. You know, it kind of took it out of the the, uh, way of being a myth for me and into being reality. And it was it really touched me very deeply. I found myself just weeping, which for me is very unusual in public. And just very, uh, it was very moving. And I thought, wow, you know, it's really possible. It's not just some story. And uh, being in Bodh Gaya, actually, it went on as an, as an even deeper metaphor for me because it also took the sense of understanding who we are of freedom out of the idea of, well, only if I go and spend, you know, 35 years in a cave, or since I stopped being a nun, I might as well hang it up, you know, I'm lost in the frivolous life again. It can't happen in the marketplace. Bodh Gaya itself served as a real metaphor to me that that's not so, because this temple is just in the middle of everything. Bodh Gaya is a dirty, dusty little Indian village all kinds of things going on outside the temple grounds, you know. But never mind even that. Within the temple grounds, as you're sitting around near the tree, you're walking around the, the stupa, there's like hordes of tourist groups coming in with uh, microphones and, you know, all different languages, Japanese, Thai, Hindus, Americans, whatever, running around. There's was a whole group of Tibetan monks sitting on the side doing some chanting ceremony for three days. There was there's starving dogs that are fighting. There's all kinds of noise from outside. There was a, a, a mad, like crazy Tibetan woman who was just kind of running around screaming and yelling at anyone who stopped for more than a moment. You know, there's lines and lines and lines of beggars leading up to the temple because it's a great spot for beggars. In fact, I was told some of the beggars live in the next village and take a rickshaw over to work every day to do their begging. And honestly, you know, because it's a, it's a lucrative place. I mean, there's also beggars who are starving too, but both. And I think Sharon or somebody told you this story about how the Hindus catch the fish out of the ponds and sell them to the Tibetans because then they'll go and release them back into the pond, you know, to save them. And this just, just it's a scene. And I thought, you know, there's no sense of let's remove ourselves from the hubbub of life. It's all right here. And and it just was a wonderful metaphor for me, reminding me that it's not about having to disengage from being human and having to disengage from all the beauty and total insanity that's part of life in this world. And it was very inspiring for me. So it, that particular metaphor, that experience, kind of gave me more, more faith that it's okay that, to open to these supportive, these awakening qualities of experience. And again, I find, and in talking with people, find that tendency in ourselves 
to not trust when we've experienced, for example, generosity or metta or non-delusion clarity. You know, people so often say, yeah, well, yeah, I was compassionate then, but you should see how I feel now. I was loving, but that was only for a minute, and since then I've been lost in anger. And we're so quick to try and knock it away, to deflect these really uh, important experiences, important because if we would really recognize and honor them, they can help us to recognize what is really true. Instead, we're in such a hurry to move on to how defiled we are. Another thing I've noticed is that when we do truly open, for example, to compassion or to peace or to patience, that there can be a kind of a poignancy because what comes in so soon is, oh, this is so nice, but there's no way it can last. And as people are saying, now there's only two more full weeks or a little more than two more full weeks of intensive sitting. How am I going to hold on to this? It's almost like I don't even know if I want to feel it because then I just start suffering because I'm craving for it, you know? This kind of poignancy of the ending of things. Although we know that it's not the case, that of course it's going to end. Every experience is going to end. Every physical and mental state is going to end. That's not a problem. In fact, when we know from the outset that whatever we're experiencing is of course going to end, it allows us to experience it much more fully with a much more depth of appreciation for it just as it is without needing it to continue for our happiness. It's really quite wonderful And in itself, it deepens, it opens our potential for resting more easily in the natural state of awareness instead of so afraid to touch it that we run back to our familiar pain. And we're not, I'm not talking especially about an ecstatic high. That's kind of another way we get sidetracked. That's why I'd really suggest just keep looking at those moments. Notice, feel the quality of those moments when you're not caught in kalesa. You know, don't get distracted by looking for something with fireworks. But just notice those moments of purity. Hmm. So that was the introduction. (laughs) I can see I'm not going to make it through this whole thing. (laughs) Anyway, we'll edit as we go along. Maybe we'll talk about one parami tonight. I don't know. So anyway, to continue, uh, I wanted to talk about these qualities in terms of the paramis, which I know have been spoken of a little before. Paramis, often translated as perfections or noble qualities, kind of um, described as perfections of character or conduct, especially the perfections in the bodhisattvas or the noble ones. So in a way, it's I see the paramis as a reflection in action, as a reflection in character of the true understanding of our nature, of what we really are, of truth. And as this reflection of the luminous pure nature of mind. It reflects in our daily activities. You know, it's sort of something you can get a handle on. You can notice your conduct. You can notice your character. It can kind of serve as a radiance back to the luminous pure nature, if you want to put it that way. But it's also a way to work in relational activities to notice this um, perfections of character or conduct in our activities, in our relations to each other. I just want to list the ten paramis, just not for you to remember or to hold on to intellectually, but just so you can recognize them experientially, you know, when they arise. They're not just some, you know, offhand experience. 
And the first is generosity. And then sila, or conscious conduct. The third is renunciation of attachment. Fourth is wisdom. Fifth is energy. Sixth is patience or perseverance. The seventh is truthfulness. The eighth is resolution. Ninth is metta. Tenth is equanimity. You'll recognize that many of these are kind of been our ongoing themes we've been speaking of. On first hearing or looking at the list, I would wonder, what about compassion? That's not on that list. I thought that was the other wing. But quite interestingly, I was looking in the commentaries about the paramis. It says that all the paramis, all ten of them, have the characteristic, in other words, what you can tell about them, is the benefiting of others. And that the, the immediate cause for a parami, for any of the ten to arise, is compassion and skillful means. So what that's saying is that intrinsic to all of these paramis is compassion and skillful means. And so um, tonight I want to talk more about the uh, parami of generosity. Hopefully patience. (laughs) We'll see. Generosity. As I say, uh, non-greed is non-attachment. Generosity is sort of a movement of that, like the spilling out, the generous giving out of energy and connecting with the world around us, connecting with others, really uh, moving out of being enclosed in ourselves into an active state of interconnectedness. If you think of attachment, you can feel how it's this state of mind that compulsively refers everything back to myself. What can I have? What does this mean to me? What do people think about me? What's going to happen to me? how everything that happens, we refer back to how is this going to affect me. And it's a very contracted, separate, closed state. Non-attachment is not only free of that constriction, but also the energy that goes into holding that, it's a huge amount of energy, is then free to turn back out to others to sort of spill outwards into the movement of generosity. So with the arising of non-greed come natural generous impulses in any of a variety of forms. You all see that here. You see as the retreat goes on, people are doing all kinds of just sweet little generous acts for each other or just having generous thoughts. A generous thought is also the same intention. And so it shows that this generosity, this parami arises and is strengthened quite naturally by our mindfulness. That each moment of mindfulness, which dissolves, or the greed, which dissolves this compulsive referring back to I, that moment of purification allows also for the potential for that movement of generosity to arise in the consciousness. And so as with, with all of the partners, as with everything, we'll always come back and say mindfulness practice is one of the strongest, most protect, strongest protections we have and really the most powerful way that allows all these qualities to develop naturally or really to be uncovered, I would even say, more than developed Also, though, we can see how the practice of generosity itself is a very powerful practice, not only just to develop the feelings of generosity, but actually as a development, an opening into wisdom, into understanding, into interconnectedness. In fact, of course, as you know, 
often when the Buddha spoke of his teachings, he broke it into three very basic practices. Dana, which is generosity. Sila, which is moral conduct. And Bhavana, which is mental development. Generosity, it doesn't have a specific form, of course. They talk of threefold generosity, which is uh, generosity of giving of material things. The second is giving of fearlessness, which I think is very interesting. Giving of fearlessness described as protection, you know, of beings from harm. One very powerful way we have of giving fearlessness is through our moral conduct. It's often said that through our conduct of non-harming, we are giving other beings the great gift of fearlessness and knowing that we will not harm them. And the third is giving of the Dhamma in whatever way that manifests in us. And of course, working with Dhamma as practice It's not so much in the observable results, but it always comes back to intention. The intention in the consciousness, the intention in the mind that gives rise to the thought, the speech, or the action of generosity. We don't, in this country, you know, it's not kind of so culturally instituted, Donna, as a practice. When I was uh, a nun in Thailand, I think one of the most profound learnings I had was on the power and the beauty of the practice of generosity because it's part of the culture there around the practice of Buddhism. It was really very, very profound for me. It's very strong in the culture. Being there as a nun or a monk you're completely supported, completely supported by people in the temples. Even as a layperson, you can go to pretty much almost any temple in the country, and there are, you know, thousands and thousands of temples. And no matter how poor or no matter how crowded, you just walk in and say you want to practice, and you're made welcome. You're given a place to stay, you're given food. If you need some supplies and they have it, they'll give it to you. And there's not, you know, the slightest ounce of begrudgingness about this. It's done with so much openness and so much joy that it, it really blew me away. And even when I first went to ordain, I walked into, went to a temple north of Bangkok, uh, a very rich temple where the abbot is very well known old and revered and well-known. I mean, I was just somebody who walked off the street. He didn't know anything about me. And he was showing me around a little kuti I could stay in. The abbot himself, which she didn't need to do, and it was very dusty. He's going, oh, it's so dusty, you know, and he starts trying to clean it up for me. Very, a very just pure kind of let's make this as nice as possible. And it just continued like that for however long I stayed, anywhere I went. I was in one small temple in the north that only had about six little kutis for women, a serious practice temple. And the kutis were all filled with with Thai nuns. And at any day, unexpectedly, any amount of people could show up and want to stay. Like, for instance, once about ten women showed up, which is a lot when there's only six huts. The head nun, every time this happened, in an instant she'd give up her hut, put as many in it, go up and stay in the cave or stay in the woods or go stay somewhere with such joy. And then all the other nuns, all the Thai nuns, they put, you know, pack in as many as they needed to in each kuti. And then me being the honored guest, they never put anyone else in my kuti, even though it meant, you know, that they were sleeping like four in one of these tiny little huts. And it was really beautiful. I would think back to when I was on staff and I thought, well, you know, was I ready to give up my room, you know, so another yogi could come and stay here when the place was full? I mean, did the idea even cross my mind? (laughs) It's very beautiful to see. 
I mean, I could go on and on, but my whole year there was just being the experience of one act of beautiful generosity after the other, and none of it forced, and really seeing how it works in people, because generosity, it kind of drives away in a way, it doesn't leave room for unwholesome states. To give, you have to first sort of look at your attachment to something and let go of it. And then in the giving, there's a kind of a, a real, um, there's some affection, there's some metta, there's some caring, a real kind of unity. It brings a real brightness, a joy, like a sympathetic joy. And you can see that in the generosity of the people that I met in Thailand over and over and over. A happiness and a joy that that arose in their consciousness in the process of their acts of generosity that was really beautiful and very deep and profound. It's it's something I see on occasion here, on occasion in myself, not in such an ongoing, spontaneous, and really deep way as I experienced in Thailand. You can also see how in the act of generosity it strengthens our understanding of interrelatedness. That in the giving you can't give without a receiver. You can't receive without a giver. That giving is an openness into our interrelatedness with another person. I think that's one of the reasons it's often suggested if you're having difficulty with somebody to give them a gift. You know, it doesn't mean throw them some piece of, you know, junk that you don't want anymore. <laughs> Here, take this. You know. But talking about real, deep, genuine giving, intention of, of giving. Um, it said not to give with resentment. Again, it said in the commentaries, this is a quotation, do not give detesting the gift or those who ask for it. That's not called intention of generosity. When we're giving with pure intention, there's that volition to give up whatever it is completely without any expectation of return. Just in that moment, you know, don't use this as another club to beat yourself because you're not 100% pure in your intentions of generosity. It's a practice. Some of the things um, coming from uh, Upandita and speaking about how to work with an act of giving as a conscious practice for opening our own understanding. And first, in an act of giving, really give attention to the volition, to the intention, so that it purifies through our intention. So in other words, we're giving and we see it, we're really we're giving because we want something back. The noticing of that in itself can be enough to purify the intention. Also, as we're giving, to see the clinging we have to whatever it is we're giving, whether it's our time, whether it's a thing, and in that seeing of the clinging, to allow that clinging to dissolve. So giving the gift freely. And then something I learned actually directly from Upandita is, if possible, but not here, please, until the retreat is over, to give directly hand-to-hand. He, I, he, I had given him a book that I knew he wanted, and it had been passed to him while I was sitting. And I went over, and he made me sign it, and I just kind of put it down. And he said, no, correct me. He made me pick it up and give it to him hand-to-hand, really looking at each other. It is such a different depth of power and presence in the act when it's done in that way that I really felt like a full faith and confidence in the act of giving, being fully present for it, and also much more aware of the interrelatedness of giver and receiver, that both are present, and the sense of the metta, that moving back and forth so that you really couldn't tell whose was whose. You know, It made the whole act so much more alive, so much more profound. It was really a, quite a beautiful lesson. 
at the same time as giving, giving with the mind really focused on the act of giving, which in other words, just being really present, not just kind of here and now I'm going to go do whatever I want to go do. Glad that's over with. But being really present. And this I thought was interesting because it just acknowledges the momentariness of all experience is that after the act of giving, continue to be aware, mindful of the intention, of the volition. Because of course it can easily change. And we all know that, that giving with the purest of intention, ten minutes later the thought comes up, oh, gee, I wonder if I should have given that. I could have really used it, you know. Just to notice that. Of course things change. Again, in the noticing is the purification. Also to be aware of the broader context of giving. And I think this also comes in with purity of intention. In other words, giving what is really useful and what is helpful. And the commentators go on long lists of the kinds of situations and things in which you wouldn't give. But, for example, you don't give something harmful, even if it's what the person really wants. It reminded me of when my sister was um, really very severely ill and was in intensive care in the hospital in one of these respirators for days. And so she couldn't drink. All she could have was ice chips. And I've never been on one, but apparently it's, it's just torment that your throat is dry and horribly unpleasant and all you want is something to drink. And that's the one thing you can't have. You know, I just remember her begging, pleading. I mean, it was really heartrending, you know. So that's an extreme example, but in that example, it's not compassionate and it's not a true act of generosity to give water, you know, where she's going to choke to death on it. You give what you can, the ice chips, that would be helpful. Or you give, you know, compassion or you give love in that instance. You know, you give what is helpful. And that's the true giving. Also allowing oneself to receive in the same focused, present, allowing way is equally powerful. And I think it's vital. You know, it's really a, a way of looking at the purity of our intentions of giving. If we can only give, but we can't receive, it doesn't work that way. For instance, one of the other powerful lessons about being on the receiving end in Thailand. I mean, knowing how we live here and how poor the people were there and how much they were giving and how I knew I could write home, you know, and have anything I wanted or however much money I wanted. And these people are really sacrificing to give me food. It's hard, given our conceptual framework, not to feel totally rotten about myself, completely undeserving. Now, and there's kind of a couple of mistakes in that. One is taking it personally, that the giving is not personal. It's supporting the Dhamma. It's supporting anyone who practices and carries on true intention of spreading and supporting the Dhamma. And it's not because I like you as a person, I don't like you as a person, so they support one, one none and not another. So it's not taking it personally. And it's also seeing that in blocking, by not receiving really deeply and genuinely and openly, we block the flow of the generosity. There's so much joy was coming to the people from the giving. It was wonderful to watch. And if I was to say, no, I won't take that, you you can feel how it just stops the energy. Or if, you know, I say, well, I'm not deserving of that. It's just a way of, of... It's really, in a way, it's a giving to receive when what you're receiving is being given in such a pure intention. Notice it here, even, like in our culture, just in one common way is in receiving compliments, never mind things, but how hard it is for some of us to just really let someone say something very positive about us. We'll say, oh, well, you know, we turn it away. We're incredibly uncomfortable. We want to say all the reasons that's not true. It's like it stops the flow of interconnectedness. It brings us into feeling quite separate. 
so that to receive with the same purity of intention, I think is equally a part of this movement of generosity, of non-attachment. And so, of course, giving, I'm not just talking about things. It includes service, giving of our time, giving of our care, just any way in which this movement of non-attachment, of generosity, moves out to others. The second uh, parami I want to talk about is patience. Patience is said to um, be the perfection of non-hatred in character and in conduct. And I can really feel how that's the case. Perfection has the characteristic of acceptance, obviously, this quality of acceptance, kind of equanimity. But it really means enduring difficulties, harmful or difficult situations, either brought on by other beings or by internal formations. So sitting here, you know, it's it's being patient not only of the external situation, but all the internal difficulties as well. It's not a state of endurance. That's tinged with aversion. Please, God, let me get through this, you know, until something better comes my way. That's not patience. Patience is the state of consciousness. It's the act of consciousness itself, patience. It's not only the span of time that you can be with something, but it's that momentary arising of consciousness itself that is dominated by non-aversion or acceptance, and again, accompanied by compassion or skillful means. And what I think is really interesting is that another immediate cause, the proximate cause for patients to arise, is seeing things as they really are. So patience isn't just something we do because we can't do anything better. You know, I'll be patient until I can get really clear and mindful. Patience arises from seeing things as they really are. I don't, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of the consciousness of patience in opening us to wisdom and to truth. Again, I don't know why I'm in Thailand tonight, but Thailand was also one of my best teachers in learning patience. Because aside from how beautiful and generous everyone was, it was a very difficult experience. Because I went there to practice with the idea of going to you know, do a long period of a couple of years of intensive practice. And I had places like IMS or similar retreat centers in England, as my model, you know, long, quiet, peaceful, forget it. I thought I'd be out in the woods, you know, a real kind of nature retreat. I spent months in Bangkok in this, this temple where I ordained, which was actually very nice for Bangkok, incredibly noisy. It just loudspeakers blaring all the time. Three in the morning, all the hundred roosters decide to wake up every single morning, incredibly loud, people all over, hordes and hordes of tourists. Even when I got to the woods, the temples would have, people would come in on tour buses because it's sort of like their parks, you know, they come on Sunday and have picnics and wander around and look at the monks and nuns and take pictures of you as you're doing walking meditation, really right in your face. And incredibly hot, incredibly hot. I would, in Bangkok, I was in Bangkok in the hot season, and I'd wake up and I, I, can, I could just see it, this ball of the sun's coming up over the horizon, and I think, oh, no. <laughs> I can't bear another day. And it would just go on and on. Finally, I got out to the country, out to the woods in this little temple I was telling you about, which is way back in the forest by a riverbed. It sounds idyllic. The forest is not quiet. The forest is so loud, I could not believe it. 
there are so many insects and lizards and snakes and bats and birds and monkeys. It's incredibly loud. You just can't imagine it if you haven't been sitting there waiting for mangoes dropping on the tin roof, you know, like (laughs) explosions during mango season. And one night there was a real strong rain in the river, which was really low, rose like probably about five feet. And it was a, a river and then woods on each side and then sheer cliffs going up. So it just reverberated back and forth between the cliffs. I remember thinking, literally, I was going to lose my mind that night from the noise of the river. I mean, I was, I, I was losing it. I was losing it in aversion, you know, and I thought it, that this stuff was an obstacle to my practice. There's no way to practice with this kind of environment, never mind the bugs and the ants, you know, and poisonous snow. Oh, and I mean, it could go on forever. So, I mean, this was, you know, two or three months or, or more into my stay of being there, when I finally got it, I said, oh, these things are not an obstacle to my practice. My reactive mind is an obstacle to my practice. And if I don't start paying attention, I see that what I'm really cultivating here is aversion. (coughs) And I could spend years cultivating aversion, or I could start to work with patience, you know, and the choice is mine. It made a huge difference, a huge difference to see that. It, it, I mean, it didn't make it more pleasant. You know, I didn't like the conditions any better. But that reactivity that made everything a struggle, as that goes away and there's this quality of we can be with whatever it is that we can't change. I mean, the Buddha spoke also of skillful avoidance. It doesn't mean patience with a really harmful situation that you can do something about. For example, if there was a particular food that made me violently ill and there were other things to eat, I'd have to think, well, it's patience, you know, I'll just eat this food along with all the others and be violently ill. It's not necessary, you know. Sometimes we, we get a little confused and we think skillful discernment means we're not being patient. But that's not the case. But the things we can't change, the things you can't change here, Pain in your body, if you happen to have the flu, if the person next to you moves a lot, if something unexpected message comes from home and really stirs up a whole whirlwind in your mind, situations we can't change. This quality of patience, it's not just a way to help us get through it to something better. It is a quality that arises because we know what's true and it allows us to deeply open into the truth of who we are instead of looking for something really spectacular. Oh, see, now I have to start (coughs) editing here. I want to read something Ajahn Sumedho says in talking about patience, the sense of not looking for something spectacular. Ajahn Sumedho, you don't know, he's an American monk who practiced for many years under Ajahn Chah, who's this great Thai forest monk. And now he has a, um, a monastery in England. He's quite funny, but I have to skip a lot of the funny stuff because it's 8.30. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. But he's talking about patience. He talks a lot about being patient in Thailand and, and on and on about how hard it is. And how he stopped, um, he used to want to be really interesting and fascinating, but he realized that was a waste of time, sweating in a kuti in northeast Thailand. And he started looking at the water buffaloes and thinking, uh, so there's the most stupid looking creature in the world is a Thai water buffalo. So he said, I'd sit there and try and say, that's what I need to do, be like a Thai water buffalo. You know, and he'd just sit and create the image in his mind of a water buffalo becoming more stupid, more dull, more patient, and less fascinating and clever and interesting. (laughs) So he's talking about this quality of patience, not just getting through, but it's opening in us quite deeply to truth. He says, Buddha wisdom is a very humbling wisdom, and it takes a great deal of patience to be wise, like the Buddha. Buddha wisdom is not particularly fascinating kind of wisdom, 
It's not like being a nuclear physicist or a psychiatrist or a philosopher. Buddha wisdom is very humbling because it knows that whatever arises passes away and is not self. So it knows that whatever condition of the body and mind arises, it's conditioned, it passes away. And it knows the unconditioned as the unconditioned. And this is the part I think is interesting. But is knowing the unconditioned very interesting or fascinating? Try to think of knowing the unconditioned. Would it be interesting? You might think, I'd like to know God or Dhamma. It's going to be an incredibly fascinating thing to know, something blissful and ecstatic. So you look in your meditation for that kind of experience. You think that getting high is getting close. But the unconditioned is as interesting as the space in this room. The space in this room, is it very interesting to look at? It's not to me. The space in this room is like the space in the other room. (laughs) The things in this room might be interesting or uninteresting or whatever, good, bad, beautiful, ugly. But the space, what is it? There's nothing you can really say or think about it. It has no quality except being spacious. And to be able to be really spacious, one has to be patient. So let's sit for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.